Grace 412 podcast listeners, it has been a crazy week already. So Sunday uh, was Father's Day. Um, Sunday night I started to lose my voice into Monday. Uh, still didn't really have much of a voice. And then Tuesday we took the teens to uh, Six Flags. If you guys weren't there, you missed out. But you're yelling, you're screaming, riding rides, having a good time. And by Wednesday morning, the voice was completely gone. And so last night we had our last 412 of the semester. And uh, thank God I was able to get through the lesson at least barely, but I was able to. And so we are actually recording this morning and we're setting up for VBS. And so if you hear my voice scratching or if you hear people uh, yelling or banging around uh, in the other room, they are getting ready for VBS, which is this Sunday through Wednesday. If you want to get involved in that, just reach out. It's going to be an awesome time. But last night we finished up our series uh, that we're calling Perspective. We're talking about the church at Corinth and we're studying 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, Emily and I, as we prayed for these teens, as we thought about the end of the semester, as we thought about summer break with these teens getting older, with a lot of you going into even adulthood and the next phase of your life, we wanted to talk about this idea of perspective. We've established that how we see the world matters. We've we've established that the person we become will largely be determined by our perspective, by how we see the world. And so we've looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and we last night ended where Paul started with the church at Corinth, with this idea of a gospel-centered perspective. And so if you guys remember, Paul is writing to a church in Corinth where sin is rampant. It's it's everywhere. It's even celebrated in some ways. Uh, there's division and there's argument, and faith is being misrepresented and even questioned. And as Paul writes to them, he says, first of all, the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, remember who you are in Christ. Remember what salvation did for you personally. And then he he moves on through verses about 8 through 17, and he says, I beseech you now, I'm begging you now that you would get along. He says, remember who you've been given. Remember the family that God has called you to be a part of. And now he's ending this chapter talking about something that could not possibly be more fitting for our current group in our current culture and the current climate. And so last night we talked about having a gospel-centered perspective in the world that we're now in. Like the church at Corinth, we are in a world where sin is rampant and even celebrated, where people are divided, and where faith is misrepresented and even questioned. And that's not just in the world out there with the unbelievers, but that culture has leaked into our church, just like it had done in Corinth. And so we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We pick back up in verse 18. The Bible says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. He says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. And so remember, Paul had just gotten done telling them, hey, you guys are all arguing about who baptized who and who's following who and who's right and who's wrong. You're all elevating yourselves. And then he gets to this part and he says, but listen, God is trying to humble you. He says, God is trying to make you see that you don't have all the answers. That's why he says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The first thing we see is that gospel-centered perspective will destroy our desire to be right. Somebody once said, the more I come to know, the more I realize how little I know. But what's interesting is if you look around the world today and even within our churches today, 
it's like scripture said, everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes. And this way of thinking has leaked into our church just like it did at the church at Corinth. You see in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, they're all going into their own groups. They're all coming up with their own way, chasing after their own plans, their own desires. I'm with Paul. I'm with Apollos. I'm with Cephas. And what happens? They end up on this pathway towards sin and brokenness and separation and isolation. And that's what's happening in our churches, in our culture, in our world today. But Paul says that's not how this should be. He goes on to talk about it. He says, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of the world? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of this world? He says, for after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews, it's a stumbling block. But under the Greeks, it's foolishness. So Paul talks about how he says that we, we used to chase after our own wisdom, and even in that we were failing. But then Paul talks twice, he says, about this idea of preaching. He says, we now use preaching to spread the good news. That actual word where he says we preach Christ is proclamation. And that's the word that's used to describe what John the Baptist does in Matthew chapter 3 as well. He proclaimed the truth. And what's interesting is Paul said the same thing as John the Baptist said and the same thing as Jesus said when he said, hey, the Jews want a sign. And Paul goes on to say the Jews want a sign and the Greeks are seeking after wisdom. He says the Jews want something more and the Greeks think this is too simple. What's interesting is they're all seeking after what Jesus offers. The Jews, the Greeks, the church at Corinth, and the people in our world today we're all seeking the same things. We're all seeking freedom. We all want rescue. We all want hope. We all want salvation. We all want peace. We all want joy. We all want purpose. But what what is happening is they're looking for it through the lens of their limited perspective. The, the Jews were expecting uh, something more. They wanted a sign. They wanted somebody in power. The Greeks were seeking after wisdom. But what did John the Baptist do? John came and preached truth. He proclaimed the truth and he pointed them to Jesus. And then what did Jesus do? Jesus made disciples who made disciples. And for us today, that is still our model. Disputes are best settled through sound doctrine and intentional discipleship. Paul, Paul talks in verses 8 through 17 about all of the dynamics that they had and all the isolation, all the separation that they had and how they were uh, divided and broken. And he says, these disputes will be settled when you realize you don't have all the answers, but when instead you realize the gospel is the core of it. It's sound doctrine. And then when you come together and unite, it's intentional discipleship. Look, the world is broken. We can acknowledge that. And a lot of us will even acknowledge that the church as a whole is broken. But we have to also acknowledge that those things are the case because we as individuals are broken. We should be able to agree there. But what gospel-centered perspective does is gospel-centered perspective says the thing that's going to heal us is sound doctrine and intentional discipleship. It's genuine conversations. It's, it's true relationship. It's, it's a cup of coffee with somebody to build trust. It's setting aside my own wants and desires for the betterment of the team. It's bearing one another's burdens. It's not some Facebook post. It's not yelling louder than the other guy. It's not isolation or division that will bring us unity. It's not through pride. 
Growth happens in relationship. Discipleship happens in relationship. The gospel flourishes in relationship. And that's what Paul is trying to get them to see here. But you see the example of the church at Corinth, and it's the exact same thing that's happening in the world and in our churches today. Instead of saying the more we come to know, the more we realize how little we know, instead we turn it around and say the more we come to know, the more that we think we know. And we're repeating the pattern that was set up by the Jews, by the Greeks, and by the church at Corinth. You remember the Jews were wanting a sign, right? The Jews were promised a Messiah, and they were expecting a conquering king, somebody that would free uh, Israel and rule those people. They were promised uh, a, a warrior, they thought, that would come in power. And so instead, when Jesus came as a humble servant who washed people's feet, who hung on a cross... Who, who, who was selfless, who was, who was a, a child of a carpenter, the Jews were hung up on that. It was a stumbling block. They thought, surely this isn't our conquering king. Surely this isn't our Messiah. And, and you look at the Greeks and it was the same thing in a different wording. The Greeks were scholars. They were wealthy. They were educated. They were wise. And so they expected something profound. They expected somebody of great intellect. They expected a leader who would impart new teaching and, and would possibly be difficult to understand or difficult to follow. Somebody of, of pristine and, and somebody of, of, of nobility. But instead, they were called to believe that somebody raised from the dead. Instead, they were called to follow somebody who simply said, love God and love others. And to them, that seemed like foolish talk. It seemed too simple. What was happening in the church at Corinth with the Jews and with the Greeks? They were trying to morph Jesus into the box of their limited perspective. That's why the church at Corinth, they said, hey, I'm with Paul. The people that follow Paul, they've got it right. I'm with Apollos. The people that are with Apollos, they've got it right. The people that are with Cephas, they've got it right. And if we are not careful, we will do the exact same thing. We will morph Jesus into the box of our limited perspective. We'll say Jesus is a Republican. Jesus is a Democrat. Jesus is a Baptist. Jesus is a non-denominationalist. Jesus wouldn't live there. Jesus wouldn't eat that. Jesus wouldn't hang with them. See, we've lost our ability to learn because we think that we already know everything. They said, I'm with Paul, I'm with Cephas, I'm with Apollos. My group has it right. Therefore, my group should call the shots. My group should be in charge. At the core for the Jews, for the Greeks, for the Corinthians, and for us, we have a deep desire to maintain control. And that's the second point. We're going to get it, and then we'll unpack it with the verses. Gospel-centered perspective will not just destroy our desire to be right, but gospel-centered perspective will destroy our desire for control. Most of us want to have all the answers because it gives us this sense of control. Most of us want to stay in our safe little circle, our safe little bu bubble, because it gives us a sense of comfortability that, that comes with, with having that control. Most of us are nervous about discussions and devotion and discipleship and relationship because that involves surrendering to the unknown and ultimately surrendering our desires to God's will and God's plan. But look at what Paul says about it. Verse 24, he says, But unto them who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. He says he should be enough for the Jews because he's the power of God and to the Greeks because he is the wisdom of God. He says because the foolishness of God is wiser 
than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. He says, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base and lowly things of the world things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and the things which are not to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. He says, unto those who are called, God is, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then he goes on to explain it. He says in verse 26, hey, he's, because of that, he's going to use people who aren't very mighty or noble. He's going to use people are, who are foolish and things that are weak. He's going to use base and lowly things and things who are despised and people without that's literally saying people that don't have anything. People with nothing to lose are willing to give up everything more quickly than people who think that they already have all that they want. That's the disciples versus the rich young ruler. And that's why you go back to John chapter 15 and Jesus says to his disciples, hey, without me, you can do nothing. See, most of us build our lives in such a way that we will maintain comfort and control we choose our friends, we choose our career path, we choose where we live, we choose who we marry, we choose what kind of hobbies we have, we choose what kind of vehicle we have, and we lay all those things out because it gives us some sense of control. But you look 20 years down the line and you see somebody with friends they don't really like who expect too much from them or mistreat them. They are in a job that they hate, but they can't quit because they've bought a house that they can't actually afford. And they've got car loans on brand new cars and $600 a month payments because they think that'll keep them from having a vehicle that breaks down. And so that gives them a sense of control or safety, but that's not control. That's bondage. And that's not peace that's pain and that's pressure. See, gospel-centered living is not about giving away control. It is about living with the awareness that we never really had control. It's about surrendering control to the only one who is actually in control. Why? Because this life is not about us. Gospel-centered perspective destroys our desire to be right. It, it, the gospel proves to us that the more we know, the more we realize how little we actually know. And gospel-centered perspective destro destroys our desire for control because it allows us to surrender control to the only one who is actually in control. And that's why you fast forward all the way to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul's writing to the same church years later. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says to them, we have this treasure, the Holy Spirit, in earthly vessels. And he says, the reason is so the excellency of God, the ex excellency of the gospel may be of Christ and not in us. That's verse 29 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that no flesh should glory in his presence. It's not about what you know, and it's not about what you have, and it's not about the glory that you will get. The last thing is gospel-centered perspective will destroy our desire to be praised. You go to verse 30 and he says, But of him who are Christ, you are in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glories, let him glory in the Lord. He says, if you want to brag on anything, brag on what God has done. So you want to live a life that is free and a life that is peace-filled and a life of joy and a life of purpose, being right will not get you there. Somebody will always disagree with you. Even if you are right, somebody's always going to disagree with you. Just being right is not going to give you a life of joy, peace, and purpose.
fighting for control won't get you there because you'll realize you actually don't have control. Cars are going to break down. People are going to get sick. Loved ones are going to pass away. Money problems can still happen. Control will not give you a life of joy and peace and purpose. You say, I'm just going to live for praise. I'm going to live to be seen as successful. Look, Praise and accolades and success, all of those things, all the praise of people in the world will not give you a life of joy and peace and purpose. Somebody else will always be more successful. Somebody else is always going to think you're a failure. Newsflash, everyone's not always going to love you. Receiving praise and accolades will not give you joy and peace and purpose. But a gospel-centered perspective in the world that we currently live in will give us joy and peace and purpose. We remember who we are in Christ. We remember who we've got in Christ. And we remember what we've been called to. Stop trying to be right. Stop trying to have control. And stop looking for praise. Just live for Jesus. Have a gospel-centered perspective. Remembering who God is, what he has done, and what he is doing and he will take care of the details. That's how gospel-centered perspective can change our lives, can change the communities that we live in, and can even change the world. And that's our goal, not just for this youth group and not just for this summer or this next semester, but for the rest of our lives, that we would be individuals who God uses to change the world because of the way that we see the world in our gospel-centered perspective. We'll pick up in a couple of months with a new semester and a new series. If you guys have questions, you have concerns, you got prayer requests, man, just reach out. We love you. We're praying for you. And we'll talk real soon.